And please open to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians 5, please follow along as I read. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. As I said in my prayer, straightforward, blunt passage. We're in a new section of 1 Corinthians. Five, chapter 5 introduces us to a change to a certain degree of what Paul's been saying. Again, most of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 4 is talking about divisions in the church based on their wrong view of not only the gospel, but also their wrong view of their leaders. And so Paul's writing to get them to quell that division, to stop that divisiveness over their favorite teachers and things like that. And then he turns to chapter 5 and says, it's actually reported among you. So he goes on to something else that's reported. So that, that turn, that change of pace brings us to a new section again in 1 Corinthians. This section will cover chapters 5 and 6 for the next few weeks. Today we cover all of chapter 5. So I'm entitling the series, Caring for the Temple. Later on in chapter 6, you'll see that Paul wants us to rightly understand our own bodies temples of the Holy Spirit. And here in chapter 5, he wants us to understand our body, the local body of Christ. And earlier on in the book, he said, don't you know that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? So, we're paying attention in these two chapters to our own bodies, what that means for us, and also to how we live and guard against sin in the local body of Christ. So, again, caring for the temple. In James 3.16, uh, that passage has some insight 
as it relates to this book of 1 Corinthians. Listen to what James is saying in this, this one verse I'm going to read to you and connect it to the realities here in Corinth, okay? James 3.16, where there is envy and selfish ambition, see chapters 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians, where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. So James is saying when there is envy and selfish ambition, even believers fighting against one another, preferring themselves over one another, their own way versus another's way, where there's that, that leads to all sorts of disorder and every evil practice. Well, here we spent a few couple months going through these three initial chapters, chapters one through four, seeing envy, selfish ambition, and now we come to the part of 1 Corinthians where we're starting to see every evil practice. So James knew what he was talking about, and we're seeing that played out here in the Corinthian church. I've entitled the message today, The Church's Response to Scandalous Sin. And if you're a new visitor here today and you think, why would he choose this passage we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We want to see everything that God has written. We want to understand everything God's written. And in doing so, we want, and this is a big deal, an accurate view of who God is and what He says. If we just pick our own easy-to-digest passages, we've created a, a view of God that we like. We'd rather see everything He's said to give us a full view, an accurate view of all that He is and all that He calls His people to do. So this is why we're at this passage today, because last week we were in 1 Corinthians 4, and next week, Lord willing, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 6. So that's our regular pattern, wanting to understand all that God has taught us. So again, the church's response to scandalous sin. Imagine you are in the church in Corinth, so get into your time machine, go back 2,000 years, you're sitting there in the region of Achaia in the city of Corinth, and you're gathered together with your local church, and Paul is the one who led you and your family and your friends and much of that church to Christ. He's since departed, he's doing other things for the work of the gospel, and you've then, in the last year and a half, been been living in this church, and there are things that go on in this church you're not sure are right, you've got questions, you'd like to hear from Paul, you know certain things are wrong, but are they really your business? And you're there as part of the local assembly, and you're about to start your church service, and you know, you see kind of out of the corner of your eye, there's that guy there in your church, the guy who is engaged in an immoral relationship with his stepmother, and he comes into church, and you see him out of the corner of your eye. And you think, I don't understand that, not my business, but doesn't seem right. And then all of a sudden, before the church service starts, the Apostle Paul walks through the door and comes into the room, and he's got a stern look on his face. And you think, oh man, this guy's going to get it. And the Apostle Paul walks over to you and some other people in the church and says, can I have a word with you outside? And he says, what are you doing allowing this man to be identified as a Christian? And you ask the question, why are you talking to us? Why don't you go and talk to him? This chapter gives Paul's reason why he's talking to you first and not that person, okay? So, this 
chapter, in this chapter, we're going to see a four-part study on protecting the church from unrepentant and scandalous sin. A four-part study on protecting the church from, an, from unrepentant and scandalous sin. Here's the first part. What is harming the church? Let's see that right away. What's harming the church? And what's harming the church is scandalous sin. You see that in the first two verses. It's actually, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So Paul's again getting a report of the state of the church. He knows and he's gotten his report from Chloe and her people that the church is divided over leaders. And here he says there's another report that I've heard that there's sexual immorality among you. And it's not just regular sexual immorality. It, it's of a kind that even the pagans are troubled by or scandalized by. This is not just sin, it's scandalous sin. It's a kind not even tolerated among the pagans. They even know that it's wrong. In a world that turns wrong and right upside down, they even know that this is wrong. And here it is, a man has his father's wife. Again, most people believe this is speaking of the man's sexual relationship with his stepmother because it names her as his father's wife, focusing on the relationship she has to his father. And notice that word has, that indicates that this is an ongoing thing, continuing to this day. It's not that a man had his father's wife, he continues to be in this immoral relationship. Verse 2, and you, this is Paul calling us outside and leaving the guy inside the church, I've got something to say to you guys. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. You're arrogant. Why would he call the church arrogant? You might think Paul would say, and you are passive. You're not doing anything about it. Or you are ignorant. You don't understand what's happening here. Why does he say they're arrogant? I think the clue's given down in verse 6. Look down at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. So, synonym with arrogance there. Your boasting isn't good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It appears that their arrogance and not doing something about this was because they thought it doesn't affect them. And he's going to go on to show, no, 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 be careful about what you allow because it will affect you. You're, you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So you're arrogant. Well, that's his deal. This, this won't affect me. This doesn't, I wouldn't do that type of thing. No, no, don't have that attitude. You should be mourning over what's happening in your local church. You should be mourning in what's happening in that guy's life. You should mourn that sin. We know that one of the beginnings of spiritual maturity is to mourn over sin. Even the beginning of the Christian life, the beginning of coming to God and being reconciled to Him by Jesus Christ is finally not being arrogant about your sin or just doing it without any restraint. It's coming to the understanding that I'm sick. I've got a problem. I'm sinful and mourning over it. That's why Jesus taught, blessed is the one who mourns. 
There's blessing, divine favor given to one who mourns over their sin and goes to God with it. These people aren't mourning over the sin of, of their brother or the one who's professing to be a brother. They're arrogant, not doing anything about it, think it doesn't affect them. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. So here's what this should lead to. A scandalous, unrepentant sin should lead to this person engaged in that scandalous, unrepentant sin being removed from the body of Christ, not considered a member of the body of Christ, not considered a Christian, a follower of Christ, because he's clearly living as a follower of Satan. So you've got to remove this person from among you. Now, we know that Matthew 18 lays out the process of how that happens. There are warnings. There's time given for repentance. There are warnings given by more people who are testimony to that sin and could be therefore then testimony to the repentance. And then if repentance is still not coming about, then you've got to tell it to the church so that they would encourage the brother, the professing brother, stop doing this, repent of your sin, we're praying for you, come home, put that away, put on Christ. And then if he still doesn't listen, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax gatherer, which is short for saying, let him be to you as an unbeliever, which means you no longer call him brother, you now evangelize him and call him to faith in Jesus, to call him to repentance. So we know that Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, detail the process of how that happens. Paul's not getting into the process of it. He's just saying this should already be resulting in this person being removed. That's what he's saying. And notice, he's not talking about the woman being removed. Why not both of them? Well, it's likely that the woman wasn't part of the Christian community. But the son of his father is. He's identifying as part of the Christian community. Now, this is nothing new biblically. Under the Old Covenant, Israel <clears throat> was supposed to cut off people from their community for the sin of incest. You can see that in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22. So, incest would be a reason to not be considered part of the covenant community. It was so scandalous that God didn't want His people associated with that sin, didn't want the rest of the world to look in and think, that's what the people of God are like. No, they're not. Look, He's out of here. That's not what the people of God do. That's not what we're like. So this is something true of the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God. So this scandalous sin is harming the church. Let's look secondly at what the church should do. What should the church do? The answer, excommunicate, which is a synonym for remove, purge, as we'll see in verse 13, cleanse, remove. All those words are used in our chapter. So remove, excommunicate, declare to be an unbeliever, whatever verb you'd like, that's the idea. Remove, kick out, purge, cleanse, excommunicate, whatever word you choose, but you get the idea they're considered to be out of the body, not part of the body. Verses 3 to 5, Paul, who's not there, he's writing a letter to them, for though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And if present, as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul's saying, I'm not there, but it's as if I am. My spirit is there, and this is the truth. This person should be judged. And then it's not enough for him to say, so I've declared 
that they are not to be part of the community, and that's enough. No, church discipline is a, is a corporate endeavor, not just something a leader does. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So it's not enough for Paul to say, in the name of Christ, as one sent by Jesus, as one making right judgments in the name of Jesus, I declare that this person should be removed from you, and that's not enough. When you're assembled, you need to make the same declaration. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you, with the power, and that word speaks to the ability that the believers have, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you, church, have the ability based on the power given to you by the Lord Jesus, to say that is not a Christian testimony that's so scandalous to the church and could so corrupt us, we've got to remove you. And the reason they can do that is because the Holy Spirit has given His power to them to make those kinds of determinations. Again, if you have questions about this, look at Matthew 18 at the end. And He says that when you've got to remove this person from the church and consider them a Gentile or a tax gatherer, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also in your midst. And that's not a passage about a prayer meeting all of a sudden out of nowhere. That's a passage about this determination the church has had to make. And if you make that determination, Christ is saying, I'm there with you. It's the right determination. You've got my blessing there. You're right. In my name, you are right. That's what that's saying. And Paul's saying that same thing here. So again, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, this is Holy Spirit-inspired language. This is one of those passages that some people don't really understand or is actually in the Bible. That seems strong. So when this church assembles, when they're together as a body of believers, there to deliver this man to Satan, hand this man over, if you will. Take him by the hand, walk him over to Satan. This is what the Holy Spirit is telling them. You are to deliver this man to Satan so that his flesh would be destroyed. Now, there's not a period after that. There's a comma. For the purpose of his spirit being saved in the day of the Lord. So here's what he's saying. You shouldn't walk him over to Satan because that's who's evidently ruling him anyway. Let's just, let's just show to be true what has been true. Walk him over to Satan, hand him over to Satan so that he could feel the full effect of the consequences of his sin. Let him suffer because of his sin. Let Satan have his way not as final judgment, so that maybe his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. I'll give you a biblical example of this. Turn to Luke 15. And as you're turning there, let me highlight this. The purpose of excommunication or church discipline or whatever you call it the purpose is salvation and restoration, not merely punishment. The purpose is that maybe one day that sinner would come home. Luke 15, verse 11. 
There's the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You know what that's a picture of right there? Satan having his way with this sinner and him being brought low because of his sin. That's the place he's at. He was a wealthy son. Now he's competing with the pigs for food. What ideally would that lead to? Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. This is a picture of God. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That right there is the purpose of church discipline. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 5. That's the reason with tears in our eyes we would pray that the one who's rebelling against God would feel the consequences of their sin short of eternal wrath and see the consequences of their sin and then think, I can go home to God and for them to come home to God and have their spirit saved in the day of the Lord, the day of furious wrath and judgment, they could escape that. So the purpose of church discipline isn't merely punitive. It's punitive so that it leads to salvation slash restoration. That's the whole point. So they'd be one. Even in this, you see the heart of God and the patience of God in wanting people to be declared Gentiles, tax gatherers, not Christians, so that they would be saved in the day of the Lord. Satan would have their way with them. They would say, what am I doing? This is not how I should respond to God. I'm going back to God. That's the goal. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. We know that God allows Satan certain powers under the reign of the Lord We know that Hebrews 2.14 says that the devil has even death in his arsenal. The Lord allows him to kill sometimes, to trouble, all under God's sovereignty, but this is placing that person in the care of Satan, if you will, again, so that they'd come to their senses, return back to God. So what should the body do when scandalous sin 
doesn't stop, they should remove the person. They should excommunicate, purge, cleanse. Again, whichever verb you choose, you get the idea. I think it's helpful to understand what this is saying and what this is not saying. Again, David Garland, who's been a help to us already in the book of 1 Corinthians, says this, the community does not determine the man's ultimate salvation or condemnation. The community of believers does not determine this man's ultimate salvation or condemnation. That is left to God. But the community is to judge whether his behavior accords with the name Christian and is to take action against those in their number who are guilty of gross immorality. So we aren't saying final judgment is ours, they are condemned to hell. We are saying that is not Christian and it's scandalous and it tempts us. We're removing and asking the Lord to save them, save their soul in the day of the Lord, bring them to their senses. Ultimately, the judgment is God's but we are making a temporary one right now saying this person is not living currently as a Christian. And that's a problem to the Christian community. It's very interesting. There's, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 27, Deuteronomy 27, 20, and it talks about incest. And notice the corporate response it calls for. So again, it's not just saying, hey, if someone's committing incest, they should be punished and let's move on. Listen to this. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, and all the people shall say amen. So it's cursed be a person doing this, and all of the assembly should say that's right. Notice the call on the community of faith there. There's no such thing as privatized Christianity. Well, that's just not my responsibility. Am I God? Am I my brother's keeper? Which is what Cain said. And we know the answer is yes. Yes, you are. That's why I've brought you into a family, a local assembly together. That's why we make membership commitments to one another. That's why we go through a process of formally identifying who's part of this church and who's just passing through visiting or checking out churches, whatever it may be. But who's actually part of it because we're responsible for one another? Because 1 Corinthians 15 was breathed out by the Spirit. So we've seen what the body should do, but why? They should excommunicate, remove, but why? Point number three, why should the church do this? And I'll answer it with these two words, protective purity protective purity. Verse 6, again, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You've got this piece of dough with leaven in it, and you know that if it's mixed with unleavened dough, that that leaven will get into the rest of the batch, and all of a sudden you'll end up with fluffy bread. So the, the little batch over here with leaven and the bigger batch over here that lacks leaven, you put them together and the leaven will then fill in the rest of the batch and you'll have, again, good fluffy bread. Don't you know that a little leaven, just a little bit, doesn't have to be a majority of the lump or the dough, 
Just a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. So if you know that to be true, not just about dough, but about sin, scandalous, unrepentant sin in the body of believers, if you know that, then here's what you should do. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. We need to remove the leaven so that there is an unleavened lump. And then he says this, as you really are unleavened. Christians saved by God are the only unleavened piece of dough in the world. What a privilege. He's, it reminds us of chapter one, right? He's sanctified us, set us apart. We're different. But then we let that leaven of sin in and it corrupts the whole. And he's saying, remove it because remember, you are that unleavened piece of dough. You are that people for God's own possession in the, in the words of 1 Peter 2, 9. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He reminds them of the Old Testament sacrifice of the lamb, the lamb that saved the family. So this is bringing them back to Israel. It's bringing a Gentile church back to understand what happened to the Old Covenant people of God on that day that day when God was going to judge Egypt for their treat, mistreatment of the Jews, God's special possession, God's holy nation. God was going to judge those in Egypt, and the angel of death was going to pass through and wipe out the firstborn of all these families in Egypt. But he made a way for his own people to be saved by blood from a lamb. And they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, and the angel of death would pass through, and he would see the blood, he would see the death, and that death, that blood, would cover and keep safe that firstborn in that family. An angel of death would pass through and then go and execute ones without the blood of the lamb covering the doorpost. Cleanse out the old leaven. And so what, what happened there in Egypt was that that was the final judgment on Egypt, the final plague. And so that happened, and after that happens, you've got dead firstborn Egyptians and rescued, protected, saved, covered Israelites. And then what, what did God do? He removed the Israelites from Egypt. He, he, he freed them. He redeemed them by the blood of the Lamb. Redeems them by the blood of the Lamb. And now as they're going to the promised land, what does He want from them? Obedience, love, adoration, worship. And so that's the language here. Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And, and the, the implication is he's died for you. He's been sacrificed for you. So now live differently for him. Be different. That's why he says in verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, the, le the leaven of malice, planning evil and actually evil, so don't live that way, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity to God and truth. So what he's saying there in those two verses, verses 7 and 8, he's not saying, hey, New Testament Christians, practice the Passover now. The way that you celebrate the Passover festival as a new covenant believer is to remember he died for me. His son was the lamb. He shed his blood. He saved me. And now I live as a redeemed member of his community. I live in sincerity and truth toward him. That's what he's saying. 
There was a problem with the Israelites when they were redeemed by the blood and then started sinning against God and worshiping idols and complaining and mistreating one another. What are you doing? You've been redeemed. Same thing here. You all, we've been redeemed as we trust in the blood of the Lamb. So now we live in sincerity and truth, not by engaging in evil. That's what he's telling the church. Cleanse out the old leaven. There needs to be a purity there. And that purity protects the people of God. Can't celebrate the death of the Lamb while holding on to sin. Can't celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, the giving of His body and His blood, the, 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 the execution of Jesus, the substitutionary death of Jesus. You can't celebrate that and engage in sin at the same time. And this isn't calling Christians to be perfect. It's calling on them when they sin to repent and keep short accounts of their sin. This is wrong. I can't walk in this way when He's redeemed me. That's what it's calling us to. New living that way. So why should the body of Christ remove this person? Because we're to protect the purity of the church. Protection. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he'll say, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be careful about who you associate with, who you learn from, who you accept as a brother. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he'll talk about being removed from those who are engaged in sin. And this isn't, let me just be very clear, this isn't every time someone in your small group sins, you say, you're dead to me. That's not what this is. The regular daily struggle with sin is something that we're, we're committed to one another in. We're there with one another. It's the scandalous, unrepentant sin that's got to be dealt with in this manner. So don't go home and think, well, you know, Janie over there, she's you know, she's not perfect, so I'm not considering her a sister. That's not what this is. Is there a certain scandalous sin that's unrepentant and that will tempt other believers in the church to engage in or to compromise their walk because of? And is that sin a blight on the testimony of Christ? Then we've got to deal with it this way. can't celebrate the death of the lamb while holding on to evil in an unrepentant fashion. I'll give you just a, an example of this. This isn't a real-life example, okay? Uh, just, but this is what it would look like. You've got someone who's been married uh, for a long time, and then all of a sudden um, his spouse dies, and he's a widower. And he, he misses that companionship and, and the relationship there, and so he starts to spend time, and he actually becomes engaged to an unbelieving woman. Now, he's got an excuse. I, I, I need that companionship. I had this for so long, uh, the, the emotional, the physical. I need, I need all of that, and it, it's so I don't want to sin, so I'm just going to marry this because we seem to connect. So, he's compromising right there. He's going against what God says about being unequally yoked, and you can't think as a church, well, that's his deal. That doesn't affect me. And then you tell your 18-year-old son or daughter to 
when it comes to their relationships with the opposite sex, to, to, to uphold the Word of God, to trust the Word of God and all of its parameters, which are meant to help them, and they're meant for their joy. So, honey, do what God tells you to do. Obey Him in these areas. And he says, why should I? Mr. So-and-so doesn't. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to say, well, if I was in that exact situation, I wouldn't do it. But people will start to compromise when scandalous sin isn't dealt with. And that will become what the community starts to look like. People turn a blind eye to scandalous sin. It affects the testimony. It affects other people's walks with the Lord. It affects their own relationship with the Lord. It does have an effect. It does. So from this case, how should we think about moving forward in the future? And that's where we come to the last paragraph. What lessons should the church learn for the future? And here's the lesson. Maintain purity. Maintain purity. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul evidently wrote them an earlier letter because this was a problem then too. So they haven't exactly learned from it. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he clarifies, I'm not talking about the world. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers, the idolaters. Since then you need to go out of the world. You can't escape it in that sense. I wasn't talking about them. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Those are all part of those scandalous sins, that whole list right there. So the person who claims to be a Christian but who is greedy, steps on others, for their own advancement. That is, that is scandalous for a Christian to live that way. That's a, that's a problem. If that's you in business or in life and you're claiming to be a Christian, please stop either doing that sin or calling yourself a Christian. That is a scandal. The sexually immoral, the greedy, the idolater, someone who will say they worship God but also has their heart somewhere else with this other God or this other sense of security, this other person, whoever it may be. If God is not first, it's a problem for you to claim that you're a follower of God, one of His children. A reviler, people who put people down in such a way that causes hurt and implies a scornful and superior attitude by the speaker. So someone who's constantly reviling the people of God, but also claiming to be a person of God. That's a scandal. That's a problem. That's a bad testimony. Or a drunkard, or a swindler, excessively greedy, even to the point of manipulation. Th those are scandalous realities. He's saying, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of those sins. Not even to eat with such a one. Now, the, the fellowship meal... 2,000 years ago, said something. This is one of us. We are one with them. And so that fellowship meal had an even greater significance than just our 
everyday lunches today or dinners today. But it's, it's saying you do not want to do anything that makes it look like they are one of your number. This isn't saying forbid all communication. We know Jesus went and proclaimed the gospel to prostitutes, tax collectors, Gentiles. This isn't saying forbid all communication. It's you don't communicate with them anymore in a way that looks like they are a brother or sister. So part of even a church discipline letter to, to an unrepentant person would say, you are not to take the Lord's table when we gather together as the people of God because you're not one of the people of God. We would call you to go back to the Father, repent, come back and share the meal with us as you repent of your sin, turn back to Christ. We want you as a brother, but you're not, or a sister. Then he says this in verse 12. Again, he's talking about the relationship you have with people who claim the name of Christ in your local assembly, but live in this scandalous way in an unrepentant fashion. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So God will take care of judging the world. But he's called all of us to look out for the household of God. That's what he's done. And again, you can't let the 21st century church culture define how you live. Because the 21st century church culture takes its cues from the world, the culture of the world. Well, if someone's doing something wrong, that's none of your business. That's a very 21st century American view of someone else's sin. An all-time view of someone else's sin or a church culture is if there's scandalous sin that's going on in an unrepentant fashion, we have got to do something about it so that they would be one in the day of the Lord. Their spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord and so that we would be protected from that. Friends, that's what the Bible says. We either obey the Bible or we don't. We either obey God or we don't. The culture doesn't change whether the Bible is right or wrong. That's what this is saying to a new covenant people of God. Verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You see here how the church is the arm of the Lord in that sense. God determines to judge by using the people of God to do this. Again, I mentioned David Garland. It's not as if ours is the final judgment. It's saying right now this person isn't living like a Christian. It's in such a scandalous way that, that even the pagans roll their eyes at it. They hear a testimony about our church and the things that are going on, and yet we go out there and we tell them, give your life to Christ and it'll change you. That doesn't match up. And people in our church are tempted to compromise with sin because that one's going undealt with. We can't do that. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, strong words. Remove, cleanse, purge. Those are all the words in this passage. Now again, it takes a whole Bible to be a whole Christian. So here's what you don't do with this passage. You hear Paul say, purge the evil person from among you. And you hear him say, is it not those inside the church you are to judge? And then you say, well, Paul, I'll see your 1 Corinthians 5, and I'll come over the top with the Matthew 7. <laughs> Don't judge lest you be judged. Listen, Scripture doesn't contradict itself. 
When you understand those passages, each in their given context, you come to harmony. And that's a passage saying, you don't go around judging people when you've got, and saying, hey, you've got a little speck in your eye, that's a problem now, when you've got a giant log in your own. Because later on in the passage, it says, first remove the log from your eye, and then you'll be able to remove the speck from theirs. So that's not saying, don't ever deal with another, believer, another believer's sin. And if you just keep reading the passage, you'll see that. So the Scripture's not at war. You know, I, I'm a 1 Corinthians 5 guy. Well, I'm a Matthew 7 guy, so there we go. How about we be both, rightly understood, okay? Purge the evil person from among you. So the lesson to learn going forward for the church is that the church needs to maintain a clear testimony of fighting sin. We need to maintain purity. Now, in just a couple of minutes, I want to draw some application for us, okay, based on this chapter. First of all, three exhortations to the one who might be in unrepentant sin today, and three for the church. For the one who might be in unrepentant sin today, when you are in unrepentant sin, you are open to Satan's schemes. You leave yourself vulnerable. When you know that you're doing wrong and fail to go to God with it and go to the appropriate people who you've sinned against, you lay yourself open to being abused, worked over by, maybe destroyed by Satan. And we see that in this passage. God will let Satan have his way with rebels. And we don't want that for you. We do not want that for you. We want you to living safely under the care of your Father. Not living in a way where he says, go ahead, have your way with her. Go ahead, have your way with him. So just know that unrepentant sin is risky. It is risky. You may be hiding it and not caught, but God's not stupid. Be careful. Repent. Come back to the protection of your Father. Secondly, to the one involved in unrepentant sin, know that bad company corrupts good morals. You might be in sin because you've been putting yourself in environments where there are sinners, there are scoffers, there are people who question the authority of God, who belittle the church, His bride, who belittle His truth, whatever it may be. Just know that bad company corrupts good morals, so remove yourself from the bad company. Come back into the fold. I'm not talking about just coming to church on Sunday. I'm talking about being accountable and part of the body, looking for protection and for safety. So know that bad company corrupts good morals. Again, I started to kind of get into this, so here's my point number three. Know that God has given you a protection in the local church. This passage is written to a local church. God has given you protection in a local church. One author once said, you should join a church that would kick you out. You don't want to join a church that wouldn't. 
that would wink at your sin. Because you go down the road and what's, what would they be doing? They would saying, they'd be saying, let him be dealt with by Satan. We are saying, let him be dealt with by Satan so that he'd be saved. That's why we want to point that out. We want to rescue. We, we, want, to, we want to, as they're running to the cliff, we're trying to tackle, don't go there. Stay with us. A church that says, go run to the cliff, not my business, that's not loving. God has given protection to you in the local church. I mean, imagine you're a sheep, okay? And in my illustration here, sheep can talk. Sheep can talk, okay? Um, Sheep can talk. So there's this fold. There's a wall around, a circular wall. You're all in it. You're a sheep that's in this wall. And and one sheep says, you know what? I want to get out of here. I'm going to do my own thing. I'll be fine. I'm young. I'm strong. I'm vigorous. I'll be fine. I know there are wolves out there, but I mean, look at me. I can handle it. To which the other sheep are saying, no, don't go out there. It's a bad idea. (laughs) Sorry. Don't do it. You cannot survive outside of the fold. The wolves are stronger than you are. That's not how God designed for you to live. God designed for you to live in the fold. Again, see the whole New Testament. You're in a fold, a sheep in a fold. You're a hand that's part of a body. You're a stone that's part of a temple. We are individuals in a corporate gathering, in a corporate people. So just know that God has given you a protection in the local church. And again, this isn't me saying, so come to church. It's me saying, have accountability in the local church. Have people who know your temptations, who pray for you, who are there with you, protecting you as you are there with them, protect, for, for them to protect them. Okay, so that's to the one involved in unrepentant sin. To the church. Dealing with sin in the church is not a license to be a busybody. 1 Peter 4.15 warns against that. And the ESV actually uses those words. So this is not licensed to be a busybody. This isn't going into everyone's home and looking under every rock and trying to find the sin and making it all public immediately. You see from Matthew 18, this is a process, scandalous sin, unrepentant of. It is a process. There's time for repentance. And it doesn't mean that all, level, all sins rise to the level of dealing with it publicly. As you learn about it, as you know about it in common everyday ways, as you're engaged in life with a person and they're close to you and you find out about this and you think, oh my, is this true? And you go to them, is this true? Then then if it's true, you need to turn from it. You need to repent of it. And that continues to go on and it's a scandal. Then we go the route of this. But this isn't saying go be a busybody. That's, again, another truth from Scripture that understood together would give us wisdom as to how to live and operate. Second, a Christian must have the ability and the courage to confront scandalous sin. A Christian must have the courage and the ability to confront scandalous sin. If you say, well, I signed up for heaven and to follow Jesus when it's easy, but this part of it, ah, count me out. 
we don't get to do that. If we sign up to follow Jesus, we follow and do what he says. Why do you say you love me and not keep my commandments? We follow our Lord. And the Christian life takes courage. There will be times where you will say, I need to talk to my brother, I need to talk to my sister, and I do not want to. And it's hard. You need to go to the God and ask Him for strength and courage and love and truth and patience and boldness and all of those things. And then you go and you talk to them. It's part of being a Christian. It's not an easy part, but again, see the long-term effect of your obedience. If I go, maybe I can help be a means of rescue. If I go, maybe I can protect others in the church. If I go, here's what that would lead to. So we trust God in obeying His commandments because of what that leads to. All of God's commandments are for good. They're for flourishing, even the hard ones to obey. So when we say, that's not my thing, I can't do it, there could be discipline, there could be sin going on in in an undealt with manner. There aren't good consequences to that. So when we know, when we're put in a position to do something about it, we've got to have the ability and the courage to confront scandalous sin. Third and finally, dealing with scandalous sin is for the purpose of restoration and salvation. Please keep this at the forefront of your mind. There are Christian communities that would amen the need for church discipline, but they see it as strictly punishment. It's meant for salvation and restoration. It's meant to bring a brother and sister home. And for a time, we might need to say they're not a brother, they're not a sister but we would welcome them back as a brother and a sister if they would come back to our Father. The goal is salvation. The goal is restoration. And I don't want you to miss the character of God that we read in Luke chapter 15. The the kid, the son, is treated better than he ever expects. Did you catch that? My, my, My father's servants have it better than I do. I want to go and ask to be just a servant. And he goes hoping that maybe he could just be a servant of God again. And God runs to him, throws his arms around him, and declares that he's his son. You are my son again. And he gives the finest robe, the ring, the fattened calf, and they celebrate. And we learn in Luke 15 that heaven celebrates when a repentant sinner comes home. So the last thing I'd say is don't see 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as harsh. See the grace of God in this whole process. He loves to welcome sinners home, and he uses the church to do that. Let's pray together. Father, help us to obey hard things in the Scriptures. If there are those who are planning evil in their mind, engaged in evil, not turning from that evil, would you interrupt them? Would you bring them the conviction that leads to confession, which leads to joy and forgiveness and coming home? Father, remind us of your holiness 
Remind us of your patience. Remind us of your forgiveness. Remind us of our responsibilities as your followers, as family members. Lord, there are so many applications we could draw from this passage. So preach to each of our hearts what we need to understand from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Ultimately, we want your son glorified. We want your bride to be increasingly spotless. We want the testimony of you to shine and not be marred. We pray that you would answer these prayers in the power of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.